Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, of course, we'll be talking about the elections. Later in the show, some really impressive victories for progressives and especially for Black Lives Matter in America's largest county, L.A. County, with 10 million people. Jody Armour will explain. But first, Mike Davis historian and activist. Of course, he's the author of many books, including City of Quartz and, most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm co-author on that one. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, let me start with some numbers. We had a huge increase in turnout on both sides. Biden got 10 million more votes than Hillary did four years ago. Tremendous increase. 76 million votes total. He beat Trump by 5 million. But Trump got 8 million more votes this time than he did four years ago. That's sort of the great shock of this election. People saw what he did as president, and 71 million people wanted four more years. The great shock of the 2016 election was not just that Trump won, but that he did it by winning the votes of some white working class people in the Rust Belt, people who had been Democrats, had voted for Obama. Not all of them voted for Trump, of course, in 2016, but just enough to put him over the top in those three key states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. This time, of course, Biden won those states, again, by small margins. Uh, Let me start by asking you about the Trump vote in general. What, What do you see as the main components of the Trump vote? Well, Trump got about 71 or 72 million votes. But every opinion poll since his inauguration, he's the first modern president who's never had a majority in the opinion polls, but it consistently showed that 40% of the population supports him regardless of whether people are dropping dead outside or, you know, the neighborhood's going up in, in, in fire. So if you would apply that 40%, and I know this isn't scientific, but apply that to the election total, and what you get are 56, 57 million Trump voters, the hardcore. And they were were pulled on election eve. 25% of them considered either the pandemic or global warming to be a problem, a significant problem, Okay. So that's the the bunker. But he also got about 14 million other votes. This I'd call the soft core Trump vote. And what explains this, if adventure hypothesis, is the fact that election eve polls, and of course polls have failed miserably once again, so you have to take this with a grain of salt. But those polls showed that the pandemic came in a number three amongst issues that voters in both parties were concerned about. The first issue was employment, followed by racial inequality, followed by that pandemic. And I think the greatest strategic mistake of the Democratic campaign, Biden's campaign, is he did not fuse together the issues of jobs and the pandemic. For instance, in April, when rank and file health workers and others started going out on strike, 
against the appallingly unsafe conditions in hospitals and warehouses and so on. The Democrats should have pushed that point, say, we want to keep people at work, but people can't work in unsafe conditions. And that's because OSHA and the Labor Department hasn't responded to a single one of thousands of complaints. Again, in the uh, final stretch, in the debates, he should have insisted, we are the party of jobs. But what we're facing is going to be a series of shutdowns again to really open and revive the economy in addition to a big relief bill that gives people income security. We need a national pandemic plan. As it ended up, the two issues became severed. So Biden ran, especially on the issue of Trump's mishandling of the, the pandemic, but Trump got to run on, on, on jobs. And of course, the third quarterly returns showed a uh, fairly dramatic uh, recovery, though it may not last longer than the next month or two as a second wave of pandemic. The October job figures were good. So my hypothesis is simply this, that the difference between this photocopy of 2016 that we're seeing now and a democratic landslide was precisely this factor. People who might otherwise loathe Trump were terrified by the idea of more closures, particularly in the absence of small business loans and of income supports. So they chose what for them was the, the lesser evil, public health, over what they saw as the necessity, which was jobs and family income. The uh, postmortems in the mainstream media have focused on the way uh, the Democrats, and Biden in particular, failed to get significant returns from the Latino vote. It's dawning on the mainstream media that the category Latino is actually complex, that you know Cubans in Florida, Puerto Ricans in New Jersey, uh, Mexicans in Southern California are actually quite distinct groups that don't vote alike. But the most startling thing to me was the reports from Texas, from the Rio Grande Valley, that the Mexican-American communities there voted for Trump. And this was a huge surprise to Biden, too. What's your understanding of what's going on in Texas? Well, first of all, I mean, Texas is the great prize, the key to the future of American politics. It's the powerhouse of the Republican Party. And to a large extent, it offsets California's uh, huge vote in electoral college delegation. Texas Democrats have pleaded, screamed for years for more involvement and, and investment from the national Democrats. The 2018 election where Beto O'Rourke came within a couple points of unseating Cruz was powerful ammunition for the cause of making Texas a battleground. At the end of the day, it was Bloomberg and another Democratic billionaire who finally, late in the race, pumped a lot of money in. And that money was all targeted on nine or 10 Texas House legislative seats. And the reason this was seen as so important is because one way that the Republicans have been fighting uh, and trying to prevent the translation of demographic change into a Democratic majority has been their ability to gerrymander 
the state. Texas, of course, is now majority minority and has been for 12 or 14 years. So it was seen if they could win nine of those seats, then the Democrats would have control of the legislature and they could prevent a new gerrymand. In fact, they lost all of those seats. Now, an odd thing is about this, that almost every veteran campaign manager and uh, political consultant in Texas will say it's not the suburbs. Uh, Texas Observer, by the way, pointed out that this clearly reveals there is a ceiling to democratic progress in the suburbs. It's not the suburbs that are the key. It's South Texas with its huge reservoir of non-voting people, you know, who are Democrats or should be Democrats. And Perez, the head of the DNC, acknowledged this. He and Kamala Harris made this, you know, last minute visit two or three days before the election to South Texas. And he says, South Texas is the key to uh, Texas and to national politics. But in fact, the Democrats did hardly anything to bring out the vote in South Texas, believing this was a captive, safe, democratic area. And I'm actually talking not so much about San Antonio, which is, of course, a well-organized political machine run by the Castro brothers, but the seven major border counties. Now, Clinton won those by 40 percent. Biden only won them by 15 percent. And in one poor 80% Latino county, Valverde County, that's the McAllen, Texas area, big uh, NAFTA corridor, the Republicans took this. And this has been interpreted in, in different ways. Some people say, well, Tejanos are more conservative than Chicanos. Too many of them work for ICE. Or it's the Catholic right to light vote down there. But these kinds of explanations don't stand up to the fact that Bernie Sanders was hugely successful in the border areas in South Texas. He won all uh, the populous counties from San Antonio uh, South. Now, he had 200 young Latino organizers full-time on his national staff. So he was able to devote considerable resources and create the strong impression that he was listening and understood the needs of the community. So it's not so much that Latinos, Tejanos in South Texas, have turned to the right, but the ones who turned to the left had so little motivation to vote for Biden. Also, I want to talk about the Rust Belt, which you did that wonderful research on in your Jacobin piece about the 2016 election, where you focused on places that had been organized by the CIO in the 30s and followed what happened to them politically uh, over the last decade. Just remind us what your methodology is there and what you're finding now. Well, what I did in 2016 is I just looked at county returns in 15 cases of smaller, medium-sized industrial cities that had voted twice for Obama. And then I went back and I read through the local press in each area And I found examples of significant job losses, new plant closures, which seemed to correlate to the fact that uh, Trump seemed to speak more directly to these issues than Clinton did. So I've just revisited this. And of course, the statistics are still somewhat provisional. But what they show is that Biden was able to reclaim a couple of areas, most significantly Erie, Pennsylvania, a major industrial center 
which has had recently big losses from its its largest plant, which is the G plant that makes uh, locomotive engines. But on the other hand, Trump won Mahoning County, which is Youngstown area. And overall, Biden's progress in the counties he won is only about a two or two and a half percent improvement over Clinton. And only one case, Rock Island County, Illinois, which is part of this uh, Quad City area, did he actually repair the damage of the 2016 election? Now, one way to look at this is, I mean, when Biden speaks about employment and the future of work in the country, he constantly talks about millions of jobs created by green energy. Those millions of jobs are an empty abstraction on the dinner tables of these areas when people are sitting down looking at their bills. And because so many of them were former Obama supporters, you can't easily connect their votes for Trump to racism. But the point is, the Democratic parties had a generation to answer the simple question of what are you going to do to increase employment opportunity and economic stability in Erie or Laredo or Warren, Ohio. I mean, you know, you can go on. And the Democrats have had no answer. That's not just an American problem. What you've seen in Western Europe, where hardcore industrial bastions of, of, of the left, the European equivalents of the Rust Belt, north of England, uh, north of France, eastern Germany, and so on, is that labor and social, social democratic parties haven't provided those answers either. The answers have to consist, I think, of geographically targeted public investment, controls over capital flight, financial outflows. And most of all, the real solution to the, to the jobs question is a massive expansion of public employment. And of course, apart from the actual social Democrats in Congress, the squad and the people who've been newly elected, no, no Democrat is prepared to go down that road. Democrats have, you know, just cower in front of the, you know, kind of villainous attacks on, on, on government and, and the public sector since the Reagan era began. So, you know, you have kind of stasis there. Trump didn't make any gains. So the extent he made gains, uh, they can be entirely attributed to people who voted for the Libertarian Party in 2016 now voted uh, for him. So there's no real change at all. So finally, Mike, you're writing about this. Where can we find this new piece? Well, there's a snippet of it. It appears as a column in the latest London Review of Books. But uh, my big piece will appear in my favorite magazine, the New Left Review, sometime at the uh, end of November, beginning of December. Mike Davis. Mike, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, John. One programming note. You can join the nation's first ever festival taking place virtually on November 18th through 21st. Four days of wide-ranging conversations, briefing sessions, and interviews coming in the wake of the most critical election of our lives. It features Bernie Sanders, Naomi Klein, Michael Bennett, Rick Steves, Alicia Garza, and many more. 
the Nation Festival, November 18th to 21st. Tickets are on sale now at thenation.com slash nationfestival. That's thenation.com slash nationfestival, one word. Now it's time to talk about progressive victories in the elections in Los Angeles, the biggest county in the nation with 10 million people. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at USC. He's been all over the media talking about protests and Black Lives Matter on NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, the NPR stations here in L.A., Now he's got a new book out. It's on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Jody Armour, welcome back. And tell us the title of your new book. Great to be back with you, John. In asterisk, GGA theory, a.k.a. nigger theory. (laughs) And we got into a good conversation about that blood-stained epithet earlier. So, you know, um, we'll, we'll come back to it another time. So, L.A. County... 10 million people has elected a new district attorney, George Gascon. He got 54% of the vote. Tell us why this is important. It's monumental. It's jaw dropping. If you asked me 10 years ago, if a moment like this was possible in 2020, I would have bet my house on it not being possible, uh, uh, John. That is how really a foundational the shift has been over the last five or six years in a number of cities from traditional prosecutors to progressive prosecutors. And George Gascon is in the mold of a progressive prosecutor. One of the first times I heard of it, I thought it was an oxymoron, contradiction in terms, made no sense to me uh, before I brought Larry Krasner out here to talk to my class from Philadelphia. He was elected to the DA, head DA position there. He has an office of 300 DAs, um, having never prosecuted a case in his life, only been a public defender and defense attorney and running on the following platform in cash bail, in police misconduct and address mass incarceration. And he got 75% of the electorate to support him him in the general election. Chase Boudin up in San Francisco, also a progressive prosecutor, also uh, coming from a public defender background, But the biggest crown, the biggest jewel, the crown jewel in the whole uh, criminal justice movement when it comes to progressive prosecutors by far is the L.A. office. It's by far the largest DA's office that has 1,200 prosecutors who are going to report to Gascon. And the policies that come out of your office fundamentally shape what criminal justice looks like, how full the prisons are, how full the jails are, who's tried um, for um, capital punishment. Everything turns on the prosecutor. It's the linchpin of mass incarceration. And this is a major, major breakthrough. The campaign in Los Angeles to replace the previous district attorney, Jackie Lacey, was initiated by Black Lives Matter. They have been working on... How how long has Black Lives Matter been demonstrating outside Jackie Lacey's office? Three years, every Wednesday, you know, week in, week out. And John... What's so remarkable is Black Lives Matter really blew up as a national movement and became, you know, kind of generational in its scope and ambitions around 2014, 15, 16. There was quite a bit of media coverage. Then the media went away. 
and the activists kept on go organizing. They kept the infrastructure developing. They build more sinews of connection. So even though the cameras weren't there, they were meeting for three years, for example, in a row every Wednesday outside Jack, uh, Jackie Lacey's office. And then when the Floyd, George Floyd protests erupted, they were able to get on that infrastructure to ride that infrastructure that was already in place. And so all those six weeks of the streets roiling with protesters translated into ballot box victories for criminal justice reform. There were probably two main issues people were in the streets about over the summer, John, and both of them, the voters, and both, both sets of issues, the voters of LA heard them loud and clear. The genius of Black Lives Matter is the way they've been able to bring together protest and politics. They've been out in the streets for years, uh, but they've also worked very hard over the last season to get people to vote. Usually organizations do one or the other, and a lot of the more cautious liberals in our world argue that all this street action and all the talk about defunding the police would hurt the effort to bring reform to the district attorney's office. What do you say to these critics now? Yeah, well, defund the police is actually the message was heard by the voters to the extent that they voted in Measure J, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But also the, the voters of LA heard them on Proposition 20 in California, which was an effort to retrench, that is to take back Proposition 47 gains, which had taken a lot of felonies down to misdemeanors. Proposition 20 was a, an effort to get rid of those uh, gains and, and to return those misdemeanors to felonies. And the voters of California rejected that. They gave voting rights to all people who are not now in prison with the um, Proposition 17. So in many ways, they heard loud and clear what uh, the marchers were saying about criminal justice reform. And you know what? Even when it came to systemic racism, which was the other matter they were marching about, there was systemic racism was on the ballot in the form of Proposition 16, the affirmative action proposition. And that was going beyond criminal justice and saying, let's get at systemic racism more broadly through this tool of affirmative action. Most Californians did not go along with that, but most Angelinos did. And most San Franciscans, most of the urban centers, they did um, vote in favor of that systemic response to racism. So the marchers in the street had an enormous impact in how we think about both criminal justice reform and systemic racism. One of the first things that George Gascon did after his opponent conceded was to meet with Black Lives Matter and the families of victims of police shootings. Why is that so significant? It's critically important because the former DA, the outgoing DA, um, refused to make those kinds of gestures to show that you feel the pain and the suffering and understand the loss of victims of police shootings, whether even if those shootings um, are questionable and we, they still have to be resolved. One thing we know for sure, when a police officer shoots a private citizen, that's not just a private citizen shooting another private citizen. 
That is the state shooting that private citizen. That is America shooting that private citizen. One of the things that Charlie Beck said at a police commission meeting I was at a while ago was that if you attack a police officer, you attack America. And I said, okay, Charlie Beck, police uh, chief Beck, I accept that uh, proposition, that logic. By the same token, when a police officer attacks an unarmed black person, that's not just a private individual attacking that person. That is America attacking that unarmed black person. That's America shooting Walter Scott in the back six times. That's America choking Eric Garner to death. And that's America with his knee on George Floyd's neck. You don't get to be America when you're a victim, but you get to be treated just like an ordinary citizen or you want to be when you're a victimizer. And so that is, you know, that kind of shift is really what we're seeing um, happening uh, in the street. I want to ask about George Gascon's priorities. What's at the top of his agenda? At the top of George Gascon's agenda has to be, number one, changing fundamentally how we think about blame and punishment when it comes to ordinary citizens so that we don't we move away from retribution, retaliation, and revenge, which is the moral framework that prosecutors' offices have been embracing for the last 30 or 40 years, and look toward a moral framework, a moral compass that says we're going to zero in on restoration, rehabilitation, redemption, right, and try to find alternatives to the punitive, retributive response to misconduct to oftentimes social problems that arise out of criminogenic conditions like poverty. And so uh, most importantly, he has talked throughout the election campaign about recognizing the need to engage in that fundamental shift in perspective, that kind of fundamental shift in the moral compass that you use to approach crime and punishment issues. So starting there, but then more practically, right off the bat, ending capital punishment prosecutions. You know, Jackie Lacey was continuing to prosecute people uh, on cap for capital punishment, um, even though Gavin Newsom, the governor, has a moratorium on capital punishment in, in, the, in the state, and the voters of L.A. have voted against capital punishment when it's been on the ballot. The state hasn't, but the people of L.A. have, but she was going the other direction, so he's going to end capital punishment right off the bat, um, which is an important symbolic and substantive move to make, and then really think about seriously police accountability, because he knows one of the reasons he's there is because Jackie Lacey seemed to be very reluctant to bring um, criminal prosecutions against police officers, even when there was damning video evidence, like um, in Marlene Pinnock's case, the woman who was beaten on the side of the road and videotaped, and we all saw the videotape, but Jackie Lacey's office said, no, it's not sufficient evidence to raise a tribal issue of fact. So he'll have to grapple with those kinds of accountability questions when it comes to police misconduct, and he's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. And there's one other thing that he's talked about. He promises that he will prosecute environmental crimes. And he says environmental justice is racial justice. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, environmental justice is racial justice. And how we think about crimes is so important. He's shining a light on that, right? There are, if you go in and you take a loaf of bread, you can wind up in jail for years. But if you defraud your customers or people you're lending money to, it seems like you can just fail upwards and, and, and actually enjoy a, a even better uh, lifestyle. So what he's saying is we're going to go after those environmental crimes that cause as much harm, if not more oftentimes, than street crime because of all the cancers, all the morbidity, 
all of the mortality that comes from environmental toxins that are being poured in the environment and, and violation of the law, but the violators aren't being held accountable. And those, those sites of, and, um, of pollution are disproportionately close near in proximity to minority neighborhoods. That's where the environmental racial justice piece comes in. Um, you know, those lives are seen as more expendable by policymakers. So they allow factories and other, you know, kinds of units that spew a lot of uh, toxins and pollutants to locate near those neighborhoods. And he's talking about going after those uh, folks and holding them accountable. Now we need to talk about LA County Proposition J. Kind of a boring name, but kind of a big idea. You said a moment ago, this is a part of defunding the police. It got 57% of the vote in LA County. This is about shifting resources away from the police. Tell us what it will do. Yeah, really interesting. At a time when nationally there's a debate about whether defund the police costs politician seats um, nationally, here you see voters getting behind a proposition aimed explicitly at reallocating resources away from incarceration and carceral responses and toward alternatives uh, like mental health, social services, job interventions, housing interventions. They want 10% of the budget. And we're talking about a budget that's upwards of, of unrestricted county funds. So of those unrestricted county funds, we're talking about upwards of eight, $9 billion. So 10% Ooh. of that is not peanut. All right. And it's going towards alternatives to incarceration. They're saying what the people in the streets were saying all through the summer is, we need to rethink public safety. Public safety isn't just do we apprehend people who commit crimes uh, at the back end, but do we spend on health and housing and schooling so that people don't turn to crime in the first place? You can prevent crime by lifting people out of criminogenic conditions. And that's what this proposition is aimed at doing. Statewide, we have been worried for a long time about the power of the police unions and the prison guards unions. They have been one the biggest enemy, really, of meaningful reform, criminal justice. But statewide voters defeated the initiative put forward by the police unions and the prison guards, Prop 20, defeated it big, 62 to 38. You mentioned this a moment ago, but let's just go back and see what were the police unions and the prison guards pushing for and what did the voters refuse to go along with? Yeah, what does it say, John, that the voters are so far ahead of the lawmakers on these criminal justice reform issues? What it says is that the lawmakers are beholden to a lot of law enforcement interests. Those campaign contributions, they gave seven to $10 million to Jackie Lacey's campaign, for example, law enforcement interest. And so it's, real, it's telling that the voters are so far ahead of the lawmakers on these issues. Proposition 20 was an effort to, again, take something the voters had decided on. That is that we need to take felonies and knock a lot of them down to misdemeanors if they involve low-level, nonviolent property crimes like shoplifting and the like, we don't need to be treating a lot of those as felonies, rather as misdemeanors. Let's ratchet them down. And law enforcement interests were saying, you know, making apocalyptic predictions about how all 
you know, hell was going to break loose if we did that. And it didn't happen. The voters of California looked at it, listened to their rhetoric and rejected retrenchment on criminal justice reform in Proposition 20. So it was across the board, John, a jaw dropping victory for progressives and criminal justice reform at the local level. And in marked contrast to what you see going on at the national level, when, you know, um, Joe Biden was asked to defund the police, he said 300 million more dollars for the, the police. You know, nothing fundamentally will change. Rather than that kind of politics, you saw a very different kind of politics play out here at the local level here uh, in, in Southern California. And let's talk about Joe Biden for another minute here. I think we're assuming that these uh, lawsuits that the Trump administration and the Republicans are bringing are not really going to get anywhere. The big problem to me is what is the remedy they seek? The votes are there to make Biden president. So there's no remedy that's going to change the total number of votes here. So really, we need to focus on Biden, Biden's Justice Department, Biden's attorney general. I can see you're, uh, you have some concerns about this. I have some concerns because uh, the people in the street were marching about criminal justice reform. And we have two people at the top of the ticket for the Democrats who are not associated with criminal justice reform. Although, you know, now we'll see how they're going to respond to uh, some of the, 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 the uh, pressure from the grassroots who put them in office in some critical places around the country. Um, but I'm, I'm just chasing the little, um, John, by remembering 92 and the elation that was felt around Clinton coming into office. And then he turned around, that's where the 94 crime bill came from. He took the scissors to that social safety net program, FDR's welfare as we know it. He, you know, like only um, Nixon could go to China. It took a Democrat to come in and take the scissors to that program. We won't talk about labor and NAFTA and all the rest. So I, 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 I wait, I worry, I wonder about the policy. I wanna see the policy first. And one thing we saw here in LA is that you know, there's no cult of social identity. Jackie Lacey was a black woman who was unseated by somebody who was not uh, a black person, but who represented black interests better than the, the person whose social identity was black woman. So we, I think, you know, sophistication beyond the politics of pigmentation is certainly what we've seen on the ground here locally in L.A. And I think it's going to be a growing sophistication across the nation. Jody Armour. His new book is Inward Theory. Jody, it's been great talking to you today. Always, John. Thank you. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to the nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. 
Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.